Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. A bottle-popping poltergeist. Furniture fell over. Objects moved from one place to another. The tale of the original road trip. They began to go as fast as they can and drive all night. It was a race. And massive mammals trapped in ice. These whales could not get to open water. If nothing was done, they were going to die in there. Within the walls of great institutions lie secrets waiting to be revealed. These are the mysteries at the museum. Vicksburg, Mississippi was the site of a famous 1863 Civil War battle. And today, the city's history is preserved in its exquisite antebellum architecture and in an institution as lavish as it is curious the Old Courthouse Museum. Its collection includes parts of an antique courthouse clock, trophy antlers from an 1870s steamboat race, and an ox yoke. But one very small item tells a larger-than-life tale. It's round, made of lead. It's probably, say, an inch long or maybe a little longer, and it has three rings on it. According to museum historian Gordon Cotton, this artifact represents a stunning medical mystery. This is one of the most bizarre stories to come out of the Civil War. So how is this bullet linked to a shocking tale of immaculate conception? 1874, Louisville, Kentucky. Nearly one decade after the close of the Civil War, Veterans of this bloody conflict continue to regale the public with amazing stories from the front lines. And there's one man with a hell of a story to tell. That man is Dr. Legrand Capers. Dr. Legrand Capers was from Charleston, South Carolina, got his classical education in New York City and his medical education in Pennsylvania. 
In graphic detail in a scientific journal called the American Medical Weekly, Dr. Capers offers an account of his times on the front lines. May 12, 1863, Mississippi. Working as a combat physician for the Confederacy, Dr. Capers tends to the injured troops during the heated Battle of Raymond. Dr. Capers was right in the middle of the fighting. Suddenly, Capers sees a soldier on the edge of the battlefield in desperate need of his care. When the doctor examines the man, he discovers a gruesome bullet wound. The bullet ricocheted from the leg, from the bone, and took a turn into the young man and went through his left testicle, severing the left testicle. As he struggles to ease the man's pain, Dr. Capers soon is beckoned to yet another injured party. But it's not a soldier who's been injured. It's a teenage girl in a house dangerously close to the fighting. This girl had been wounded by a bullet. Capers examines the young girl and discovers that she has been shot in the abdomen. Her hopes for survival seem grim. All the doctor can do is make the teenager as comfortable as possible before going back to the battlefield. It is the last he thinks he'll ever see her. But as Capers tells it, when he returns to Louisville seven months later, he's utterly astonished to see that the teen has made a full recovery. And that's not all he notices. It seemed that after the young lady got well, she started gaining weight. Dr. Capers examines her and delivers an amazing diagnosis. She's pregnant. It's a condition the young woman says is impossible. She maintained that she couldn't be pregnant because she was a virgin. Dr. Capers believes her. But when he traces the timeline of her pregnancy, he finds that it stretches directly back to her injury. And that's when it hits him. The bullet that injured the soldier, like this one at the old courthouse museum, must have passed through the soldier's body and then struck the girl as well. He could only come to one conclusion. It had to have been the sperm on the bullet from the testicles that penetrated the abdomen that this was the cause of the pregnancy. Two months later, the teenager gives birth to a baby boy. Capers then tracks down the soldier to tell him about his surprising path to fatherhood. He went and found him and introduced him to the young lady. The soldier was probably in disbelief at first. Eventually, the two married and had two more children by the normal method. When Capers' miraculous account of wartime conception is published in 1874, it fascinates and delights the general public. Readers were absolutely amazed when they read this. The story became a legend. But just two weeks after Caper's story is published, the editor of the American Medical Weekly prints a surprise correction. The whole thing was just a hoax. There was no virgin bullet birth. It was just simply a great story. There was no soldier, no sperm bullet, and of course, no baby. But why would Capers perpetrate this stunt? It turns out the doctor wanted to teach the medical community a valuable lesson. After the Civil War ended, many doctors came forward with sensational and highly questionable tales from their time on the front lines. And few dared question the accounts of these brave frontline physicians. Most of medical stories were accepted as fact. But Capers had grown tired of these tall tales, 
believing them to be damaging to the institution of medicine. So he published his account of the bullet baby to expose how easy it was to pass off a lie as the truth. But even he underestimated the power of the pen. The story was out there. And how do you call it back? This is a myth that lives on to this very day. And here at the old courthouse museum, this lone bullet reminds visitors of a made-up medical mystery and one of the most enduring urban legends in military history. Located at the United States' northernmost point, the city of Barrow, Alaska is known as the rooftop of the world. And honoring the native people who have thrived in this remote Arctic region since as early as the year 1000 is the Inupiat Heritage Center. The museum celebrates the Inupiat people and their hunter-gatherer way of life with artifacts such as jade harpoon heads, caribou skin pants, and an umiak boat frame. But unlike many of the handcrafted objects here, one item stands out as a factory-made creation. It's made out of stainless steel. It has a propeller at the end of it, and it's encompassed by a blue cage. As curator Patuk Glenn tells it, this odd industrial contraption played a critical role in an international incident that captivated the world. This was linked to one of the most extraordinary rescue events in Alaska's history. What part did this machine play in a remarkable mission of mercy? October 7th, 1988, Point Barrow, Alaska. Winter has arrived early even for this part of the world, and a local hunter named Roy Amoak treks over the frozen Beaufort Sea on his morning scout. Suddenly, his eye is drawn to a hole and something breaching the surface of the water. As he approached, he realized that it was three gray whales stuck in the ice. Gray whales typically spend their summers feeding in the Beaufort Sea and then migrate to warmer waters in the fall. But these animals likely got trapped by the early freeze, which iced over a five-mile stretch of sea. And because the whales must come up for air every 15 minutes, it's a distance not even these mighty animals can swim. But Amoak has a more immediate challenge. These are mammals. They were struggling to come up and breathe. Roy knows the cramped 20-by-20-foot holes are insufficient for the colossal animals and rushes to get help. He soon returns with a group of determined local villagers. And wielding chainsaws, shovels, and poles, they chip away at the ice. But this proves to be a Sisyphean task. As they cut away, it is so cold that the water instantly begins to freeze again. This desperate attempt to save the whales, now dubbed Operation Breakthrough, soon attracts national media attention. And when a pair of ice fishers from Minnesota hears about it, they realize they have just the tool that can help. A de-icer. The machines, one of which is now on display at the Inupiat Heritage Center, are typically used to prevent ice fishing holes from freezing shut during the harsh Midwestern winter. It propels warmer water from the bottom to move up to the top keeping this water circulating so that the ice would not refreeze. When the de-icers arrive in Barrow, the Inupiat crew runs multiple machines to keep the breathing holes open. 
It's a move that buys the rescue operation valuable time. Time that's running out. These whales were exhausted. They were in very bad shape. They were cut up from the ice. If nothing was done, they were going to die in there. Can these magnificent creatures be saved before the ice becomes their Arctic grave? A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince? They exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to Quince.com upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. Since 2013, Bombas has donated over 100 million socks, underwear, and T-shirts to those facing homelessness. If we counted those on air, this ad would last over 1,157 days. But if we counted the time it takes to make a donation possible, it would take just a few clicks. Because every time you make a purchase, Bombas donates an item to someone who needs it. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. It's 1988, Point Barrow, Alaska. Three gray whales are trapped under the frozen Beaufort Sea, struggling to breathe through a small hole in the ice. Now, the world watches with bated breath as rescue teams race against time and the elements. Will they be able to save these majestic but helpless creatures? On October 21st, rescuers grow concerned when they discover that the youngest whale has disappeared. They believe that she had passed on through the night. The loss of this great mammal spurs all those watching to step up their efforts to save the two remaining whales. The team cuts a series of holes to form a makeshift path that extends for two miles. But soon, Operation Breakthrough encounters its greatest challenge yet. With miles to go, an enormous ice ridge blocks the whale's path. Created by the pressure of different ice flows squeezing together, it rises 35 feet from the surface. Rescuers fear that the ridge also extends downward to the seafloor, making it an impenetrable wall of ice. These whales could not get to open water. There was just no moving forward. But just when it seems that all hope is lost, good news comes from a most unlikely source. 
the Soviet Union. Upon hearing of the animal's desperate plight, America's Cold War rival offers the services of two massive ships. The Russians had these icebreakers that could just rip through any ice. And on October 25th, the vessels bashed down the frozen wall. After almost three weeks, the two surviving whales are finally freed. The operation cost over a million dollars in labor and equipment. But for the rescuers and the countless others who followed the saga, the effort was priceless. And today, one of the de-icers that gave rescuers hope remains on display at the Inupiat Heritage Center, a proud reminder of the whales that inspired the world and a community that refused to give up. Durham, North Carolina is the home of Duke University, which is world-renowned for its medical and scientific research facilities. And not far from the campus is a building that's home to a different area of study, the Rhine Research Center and Parapsychology Museum. Inside are tools and paraphernalia used to examine the phenomena of telepathy, extrasensory perception, and other mysteries of the mind. But among the many elaborate devices is one artifact that looks more like a simple game. It's a pack of 25 cards with five different symbols on them. According to executive director John Kruth, these cards tell a haunting tale of untold powers and possession. It's an amazing case that captured the attention of the nation. How is this deck of cards linked to a spine-tingling investigation that inspired one of the greatest horror films of all time? 1958. Seaford, New York. James Herman is a 42-year-old family man who enjoys a quiet life with his wife and two children in their Long Island home. But that peaceful existence is about to be shattered. On February 3rd, his family hears several loud popping sounds coming from another room. Upon investigating, they make a curious discovery. They found numerous bottles that seemed to have been unscrewed and contents were falling all over the floors. And that's not all. Religious items seem to have spontaneously fallen from their shelves and tables. There were little statues that seemed to be broken in different parts of the house. James begins to wonder if the incidents are the handiwork of his mischievous 12-year-old son, Jimmy. This is a very rational man, so he thought someone was playing tricks in the house. When confronted, Jimmy insists he's not responsible. But his logic-driven father isn't convinced. Mr. Herman started to look for strings that were tied to the bottles. He searched to see if there was something on the counter that would have caused it. He found no evidence. Then one night, while his son is getting ready for bed, Mr. Herman observes something he simply can't explain. Jimmy is in the bathroom while Mr. Herman is at the door. And... They both froze when they saw two bottles fall onto the floor. James is stunned. He began to wonder, what is going on here? A terrified James Herman contacts the authorities for help. And a reluctant detective named Joseph Tazi is assigned to the case. Initially, he thinks maybe this family is doing this to try to get attention. But as he compiles his report, 
Tazi begins to change his tune. As he gets to know them, he realizes they are genuinely disturbed. They want this activity to stop. Then the detective witnesses the family's terror for himself. Bottles continued to open and break. Furniture fell over and objects moved from one place to another. Detective Tazi is at a loss. Then, in early March, as news of the phenomena spreads, an intriguing visitor appears at the Herman's door. Dr. J. Gaither Pratt, a parapsychologist from Duke University. He studies out-of-body experiences, near-death experiences, hauntings, and ghosts. Pratt believes he may be able to solve the case, and the desperate family agrees to let him investigate. Soon, after examining Detective Tazi's report, Dr. Pratt notices a strange pattern. The disturbances seem to only take place when 12-year-old Jimmy is present. In almost every case, Jimmy was around when the events occurred, so they start to wonder, is he actually involved in these in some way? But how could Jimmy have perpetrated such an elaborate ruse under the watchful gaze of his father? Pratt argues that Jimmy is not a prankster. Rather, he's the unwitting agent of telekinetic energy, or a poltergeist. With poltergeist phenomena, objects would move, break, and noises would be heard in an environment. Pratt explains that he believes these types of disturbances can be the byproduct of an overactive adolescent brain. It is an unintentional parapsychological effect a young adolescent is going through such turmoil that sometimes they cause an energy to be produced which breaks objects and causes unintentional noises. If he is correct, Pratt believes that Jimmy can telepathically transmit and receive information. So he tests Jimmy with cards like these on display at the Rhine Parapsychology Museum. Each card features a distinct shape that is concealed from the subject. The researcher will then try to send information about the card to the child, and then the child tries to guess which card it is. But to Pratt's dismay, Jimmy's ability to guess the shapes is unremarkable. There was no evidence that Jimmy had ESP. Then, on March 10th, after months of unexplained incidents, the phenomena suddenly stop. The detectives and the scientists never could come up with a conclusion on what might have been happening. We'll never know the answers for sure. Though the Hermans try to forget the episode, a fascination with their story endures. The inexplicable tale becomes one of the inspirations for Steven Spielberg's 1982 blockbuster, Poltergeist. And these cards at the Rhine Parapsychology Museum stand as a reminder of an ordinary family who was terrorized by forces that to this day remain a mystery. Just outside the tiny farming town of Murfreesboro, Arkansas, is Crater of Diamonds State Park, home to the only active diamond mine in the United States. The site's Diamond Discovery Center celebrates its sparkling past, displaying such items as antique prospecting tools, and stunning stones unearthed right here at the park. But according to park interpreter Margie Jenks, the most fascinating artifact isn't a precious gem, but a simple piece of paper that's over a half a century old. 
It's an official document. For the person who is purchasing this piece of paper, it was essentially purchasing a dream of great wealth. For all its promises, this document speaks to a bitter feud beset by greed, trickery, and murder. To this day, this mystery is still unsolved. How is this deed connected to one of Arkansas's most baffling crimes? 1952. Just south of Murfreesboro lies some of the country's most coveted property, a bed of rare volcanic soil that has given birth to thousands of precious stones. The land is so valuable simply because it had had numerous diamonds found there. And among the lucky few who own a piece of this land is a man named Howard Millar. But mining his 40 acres is an arduous task. So Millar comes up with an ingenious plan to have others do it for him. He names his land Crater of Diamonds and offers visitors the opportunity to strike it rich. So you would pay a fee to go search for diamonds, and then if you found a diamond, you could keep it. And soon, eager visitors flood the Crater of Diamonds, and the venture proves a smashing success. But then, in 1958, Ellis Fagan, an enterprising caretaker of a neighboring property, decides he too wants in on the action. But there is a problem. His land is nearly worthless. There were almost no diamonds that were ever found on that property. So the undaunted Fagan devises a devious scheme that begins with diverting traffic away from Millar's property to his. He would stand with a stop sign and usher people into his road. Fagan shows tourists diamonds from his pocket, claiming that his land is littered with them. Then he promises something irresistible, the deed to a one-foot square plot of the property, like this one on display at the Crater of Diamonds Discovery Center. People begin snatching up plots by the dozen. The people who bought those plots probably dreamed of finding a big diamond. Millar is outraged by Fagan's shameless trickery and lies and demands that he put an end to the practice. Alice Fagan wasn't about to stop because he was making money off of every tourist that he could lure away from the Millar's Crater of Diamonds. A fed-up Millar files a lawsuit against his rival in September of 1959, demanding compensation for his lost profits. But Fagan claims that such a lawsuit would bankrupt him. He really didn't have the funds to pay. But before the case can be settled, there's a shocking turn of events. November 15, 1959. Police are summoned to a guard shack near the Millar Diamond Mine. Inside, they discover the body of 58-year-old Ellis Fagan. They found him shot through his right hand and his temple with a pistol in his left hand. Investigators assume that mounting financial and legal pressures led Fagan to take his own life. But upon interviewing his family and friends, they draw a chilling conclusion. His left hand, where the gun was found, was actually so arthritic that he couldn't use it. So, this is not a suicide. This is homicide. Suspicion immediately falls upon Fagan's neighbor and nemesis, Howard Millar. 
suspect, Millar, states his innocence, telling police he couldn't have pulled the trigger. He had a rock-solid alibi. He had been out of town the entire time of the incident. In light of this new information, detectives speculate that Fagan's death was the result of a robbery gone terribly awry. So they thought whoever had killed Fagan was actually interested in the diamonds that he had in his pocket. Authorities soon focus on a 27-year-old drifter named Charles Bard. The drifter is on a self-professed quest to find gems and had been recently spotted near Fagan's property. But when questioned, Bard is uncooperative. He refused to take a lie detector test and so, of course, was arrested and put in jail. As Bard is closely investigated, a startling revelation comes to light. It turned out that there was a connection with him to the Millars. Some theorize that Millar hired Bard to commit murder and ordered that the hit go down while he was out of town. But there is no hard evidence linking either man to the killing, and police are forced to release Bard from custody. With no other suspects, the case eventually goes cold. We may never know who actually murdered Ellis Fagan and why. In 1969, Millar sells his property, and later the land is acquired by the state of Arkansas and converted into a park. Visitors are encouraged to dig for gems in the tradition of the area's first speculators. And today, this paper deed on display at the Crater of Diamonds State Park Discovery Center speaks to the eternal dream of striking it rich and to a baffling crime that remains unsolved. Tucked into the rolling horse country of Catonsville, Maryland, is the University of Maryland, Baltimore County. And here, on its tree-lined campus, is the Albin O. Kuhn Library. It is home to a nationally recognized photography collection that includes boxes containing nearly two million photographic negatives, along with an array of historic equipment. And hidden within this vast catalog is an obscure tool of one photographer's trade. This artifact is approximately one inch tall and one inch in diameter. It's made of black paper. Yet according to curator Emily Hover, this simple artifact played a central role in a hair-raising photographic mystery. It was either part of an elaborate ruse or an unprecedented psychic phenomenon. Who wielded this mysterious object? And how did he use it to create unearthly images? Denver, Colorado, 1964. For years, clinical psychiatrist Jewel Eisenbud has been on an unusual quest to find scientific evidence that psychic phenomenon are real. But his inquiry has been far from fruitful. The only issue that he saw with psychic phenomenon was that it could never be proven because such phenomenon wasn't predictable. But one day, he receives a letter in the mail which offers to provide the evidence he's been searching for. There's a man in Chicago claiming to be able to produce photographs with his mind. An eager Eisenbud travels to Chicago. There he meets the so-called psychic photographer, a former bellhop named Ted Sirios. But his first impression is not a good one. 
He was not highly educated, and he definitely drank a lot. A suspicious Eisenbud loads fresh film into a Polaroid camera and hands it to Sirios. But before he snaps any photographs, the man takes out an object he calls a gizmo. When Eisenbud first sees the gizmo, of course, he questions what it is. Sirios explains that it's a simple hollow tube of paper that he uses to help channel his thought images onto the film. Then he proceeds to hold the device between his head and the camera lens before seemingly entering a trance. Basically, his pulse would race. His whole body would tense up, all of his muscles. He squints his eyes and presses the shutter button. Several attempts produce pictures that are simply black. Then Sirios takes a shot that develops into something astounding, a hazy image of the Chicago Water Tower landmark. The doctor is speechless. It was at this point that Eisenbud started realizing that he might have something really unique on his hands. The former bellhop then explains the trance-like state and the images he calls photographs. He described it as him being a medium or just a portal. He just knew the exact second to trigger the exposure. An enthused Eisenbud invites Sirios to come back to Colorado, where he can study the phenomenon under highly controlled conditions. Ted took Eisenbud up on the offer and moved to Denver. Eisenbud closely examines the photographer's process, beginning with the so-called gizmos, examples of which can now be found at the Kuhn Library. And he confirms that they are, in fact, simple rolled-up pieces of paper. Then, to test if he is somehow manipulating the camera with an electrical signal, Eisenbud places Sirios in a Faraday cage, a mesh enclosure that blocks electromagnetic energy. Ted was inside of the cage, and he had the gizmo with him, but not the camera. In the presence of several witnesses, Dr. Eisenbud stands away from the cage and snaps the shutter. When he develops the print, he is stunned. It reveals three men in military uniform. It was like the image just kind of passed through him onto the film. The doctor is convinced that Sirios's seemingly psychic powers are real. He publishes his findings, and when news of the phantom photographer spreads, he becomes a star. But not everyone is convinced. Critics think there's more to these images than meets the eye. Detractors argue that in creating the images, Sirios uses more than just his mind. What a lot of critics claim is that he was somehow through sleight of hand slipping into the gizmo both an optical lens and basically a transparency. According to doubters, the transparency contains an image. When the lens is placed directly against the camera, light passes through it, projecting the image onto the camera's film. They also argue that Sirios's drunken antics are merely a diversion that allows him to conceal the device from observers like Eisenbud. However, this theory fails to account for how he produced photographs when the device was not in contact with the camera. Ted would be separated from the camera by increasing amounts of space up to 24 feet. For believers like Jewel Eisenbud, 
there is only one possible explanation. Sirios is transmitting the images with his mind. The witnesses that saw the experiment either became believers or they at least were no longer non-believers. Then, in 1967, as scrutiny over his process mounts, Sirios creates a curious photograph. Ted produced an image of curtains, and I think Ted knew at that point the proverbial curtain had fallen. Sirios is convinced that his gift has vanished. And sure enough, he never publicly produces another psychic photograph again, living a life of obscurity until his death in 2006. To this day, no one has offered a definitive explanation for exactly how Sirios made his photographs. Today, this simple hollow tube, along with a vast portfolio of photograph images in the Kuhn Library, stand as testament to an eccentric man and the mysterious images he created. The Washington, D.C. metro area boasts a staggering 3.8 million registered motor vehicles. But the most impressive assortment of cars can be found at Smithsonian's National Museum of American History. From a 19th century electric trolley to Henry Ford's iconic Model T, this collection showcases pioneering vehicles from our transportation past. But amid these polished machines is a curiously worn set of wheels. It's red, it has original leather upholstery and brass lamps. The body is made of wood. And according to curator Roger White, this weathered wagon tells an extraordinary tale of a revolutionary ride. It changed the way people thought about long-distance travel, and it changed the way they thought about automobiles. To what epic adventure is this vehicle linked? And how did it transform the landscape of American travel? May 1903, San Francisco, California. Many in this city are intrigued by a recent innovation the horseless carriage. Automobiles were new and intriguing. They were just evolving. But others think that the vehicles are little more than a passing fancy. Some claim they were just a rich man's toy and you wouldn't be able to really go anyplace with them. But one man is convinced that cars offer reliable mobility like never before. A 31-year-old doctor named Horatio Nelson Jackson. After debating the point with friends, a confident Jackson wagers $50 that he can drive from San Francisco to New York City in less than three months. He's dedicated. He's going to do it. No doubt about it. Jackson purchases one of the most reliable vehicles on the market, a 1903 Winton Touring Car, the very one now on display at the National Museum of American History. It was a very advanced car, big engine, two-cylinder engine. It was a very strong car. To maintain the high-tech contraption, Jackson hires a 22-year-old auto mechanic named Sewell Crocker. On May 23rd, the pair embarks upon their transcontinental trip on an uncharted route across the United States. But it's far from a joyride. There are no gas stations or motels and fewer than 150 miles of paved road nationwide. After just 15 miles, the road takes its toll when the rear tire blows out. But the determined voyagers press on. On June 12th, 
upon entering Idaho, they encounter a bulldog named Bud. Convinced he's found a lucky mascot, Jackson purchases the dog. But upon hitting the road, the pooch encounters a problem. The dust was getting in Bud's eyes, so Dr. Jackson bought Bud a pair of goggles. As word of the traveling trio spreads, their journey becomes a national sensation. Can you imagine seeing two guys and a dog with goggles coming at you? It had to be a hit. But on June 20th, their luck changes. The Packard Motor Company sends a driver to challenge Jackson in his quest to be the first to cross the country. And they have a decided advantage. They shipped supplies ahead of time in anticipation of problems along the way. When they learn of the competition, Jackson and Crocker pick up the pace. At that point, they began to go as fast as they can and drive all night if they can. It was a race. The doctor and his team are making good time. But just outside of Buffalo, New York, they pay a price for their newfound speed. They were clipping right along, 30, 35 miles an hour. And they hit an unseen hole in the road, which violently threw all of them out. Amazingly, no one is injured, but their Winton touring car has suffered. The car looks bad, the fenders are gone. Fortunately, the engine caught and started to and they continued to head to New York City. And on the morning of July 26th, after 63 days and an estimated 5,600 miles, the car crosses into New York City. Dr. Jackson, was the first man to drive an automobile across the United States. It seems the Packard team that tried to steal their thunder trailed over 1,200 miles behind. Soon, news of the trio's remarkable victory spreads, convincing skeptics that cars are here to stay. It really changed the whole way the country looked at the automobile. Then they realized that we need to build better roads and more roads. And today, Jackson's 1903 Winton Touring Car is parked at the Smithsonian, a reminder of the transcontinental road trip that transformed the nation. From a dramatic Arctic rescue to a historic road trip, an outlandish medical myth to a puzzling poltergeist. I'm Don Wildman, and these are the mysteries at the museum. Small details are big surfaces. Tight corners are odd shapes. Flat, rounded, textured, or tall. Whatever your next project, there's a spray paint pattern that's just right. Because Rust-Oleum's new Custom Spray 5-in-1 gives you control with five different spray patterns. So you can tackle nooks, crannies, edges and curves, without worrying about drips, runs, uneven coverage, or anything else. Custom Spray 5-in-1, only from Rust-Oleum. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Even on a budget, 
Quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince, they exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.